Stephen, thanks a lot for coming on the Judgment Call podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Hey, absolutely. Um, sorry about my improvised uh, setup here today, but I hope you can still manage that. So you run a company called Behind the Balance Sheet, and uh, you also uh, recently published a book that's called The Smart Money Method. And uh, both I thought are really interesting, and we want to dive a little deeper into uh, both of the topics that you illuminate there. Maybe you can give us a very quick intro into how you got into the financial world in the first place and what inspired you to write the book and what's kind of the 30,000 feet view of what's in the book. Okay, so um, I nothing inspired me to get into finance. It was purely accidental and serendipitous. I, um, I had accepted a, a job at a very senior level, one of the largest companies in the UK, where I was reporting to somebody that was reporting to the CFO, finance director. I was interviewed by the CFO for the job at a relatively young age, and they gave me the job, and they were delighted to have me, and I accepted the, the, the role. And they then called me up, and they said, oh, we made a bit of a mistake because you're too young. You won't you can't be this grade until next year. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, don't worry, it'll only be a little bit less money and there'll be a, a slightly uh, fewer benefits and we'll, we'll make you up next year. And I said, well, I'm very sorry, but you know, as far as I'm concerned, we've, we've, we had a deal and I'm not allowing you to renege in that deal. If you have such a stupid philosophy that, somebody has to be a certain age before they're qualified to do the job, then I suggest you go and look elsewhere because I'm not really interested in an working for an organization where merit doesn't overcome age. And um, I was recounting this tale and a friend of mine said, oh, well, that sounds a bit upsetting, but why don't you go into the city? And I said, well, don't be stupid. I don't know anybody in the city. The city's for people with privileged backgrounds, that won't suit me. And he said, well, no, I think uh, you'll find that things are opening up. And I said, well, what, how would I do that? What, what, I don't know, how would I get, I don't even know where to start. And he said, well, I don't know either, but my secretary's husband, he works at a stockbroker and I bet you he'll see you and, and explain, you know, what sort of things you might be able to do. I said, oh, that'd be fantastic. So he called up his secretary at home and she said, Oh, yeah, of course, he will be delighted to, to see Ask Steve if he can come in next Wednesday at 8.30. So next Wednesday at 8.30, I rock up to this stockbroking firm, and this very nice chap, Bob Carl, um, spends half an hour telling me what it's like to be a research analyst. And I'm thinking, oh, man, that sounds like fun. And he says, well, why don't you come and work for us? And it, it was, you know, I hadn't gone there to get an interview. I'd gone there simply to learn and understand what... Um, what the city was about and I you know I went to work for him and it was a brilliant job I really loved doing it found it incredibly interesting incredibly exciting and I never really looked back and so my career spanned the sell side where I was a, an analyst covering various sectors for many years and I then was asked by one of my clients a big hedge fund if I would go and work for them and I did that and I thought oh wow this is even more fun because I'm doing the work that I really enjoy, which is you know researching companies. And I don't have to deal with the pesky clients because when you're at an investment bank or you're on the sell side, there's a reason it's called the sell side because you have to sell to people. And although I really enjoyed the relationships, um, the marketing part of it was you know a bit dull. You know, I mean, I remember at one firm I worked for, you were given a big, uh, a big cardboard sheet every month and you had to it, it all the days of the month and tick boxes and you had a list of clients you had to call and you had to make a hundred phone calls a month whether or not you had anything to say you know i thought you shouldn't call people unless you had something interesting to say anyway so i moved to the buy side and it was really an amazing journey absolutely fantastic fun and um i then ended up um, setting up my training and research consultancy behind the balance sheet in 2018. Um, the fund that I'd worked for, we decided to close it. The performance hadn't been very good and the 
it really wasn't a lot. It really wasn't much fun um, coming in every morning at seven fifteen and leaving at seven o'clock and not making any money. And we decided to close it. I had assumed that I would just get another job, but I found it more difficult because nobody wanted to employ an analyst age fifty. So I set up the consultancy, and it's been fantastic fun. And you know, why did I set up the book? Well, I, I started the book because I'd been doing all this training and I thought, well, maybe people would, you know, find the book helpful. I could write a book that was interesting. And I, I had the basis of it. And so the book was published in November last year. And somewhat to my somewhat to my surprise, it's been really very popular. And you know, loads of people have emailed me saying, Oh, this is the book I wish I had when I was started in investing. Loads of people email and say, oh, this is fantastic because we now understand what we should be doing. Some people email me saying, this is brilliant because you convinced me that I don't want to do my own investing because it's a bit sounds a bit difficult. But I've had all sorts of very positive feedback. And the book, essentially, it's kind of got some of my actual real life experiences woven through it. But it's really a book about the process I developed as an analyst at very large hedge funds to research companies. And so it, it's something like a how-to guide, but it's a more practical how-to guide. We don't really talk about any of the theory at all. We just go through how do you invest and how I my process developed and how do I look at a company? So how do I start? How do I find an idea? And then once I've found an idea, what do I do with it? How do I examine it? How do I explore it? How do I look at an industry? How do I look at a company? And I then go through, I don't go through in great detail the financials. Um, you know, obviously I sell training courses which help people how to read a balance sheet and how to understand a set of accounts. And I didn't, that could have been, that could be a whole book. I mean, uh, and I didn't, I wanted the book to be, something that anybody could pick up and that they wouldn't be turned off by it, that they wouldn't be put off because it was all about reading balance sheets. So we cover a bit about the balance sheets. We cover, you know, how to look at management and, you know, also stuff like, you know, how do you think about the macro? We put in, uh, I, I finished writing it just as COVID um, started to peak. So, I, probably May, June last year, I finished the book and I thought I really should put a paragraph or a chapter about COVID. Turned out, started out small and then I ended up doing a whole chapter on it, which with the benefit of hindsight, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I should have in, included that. I think the book would have had a longer validity, a longer shelf life without it perhaps. But some of the points that I made there, initially they didn't look that smart because I've been talking quite a lot about the issues in supply chains because when COVID happened, I felt that supply chains would get very stretched. And it's interesting, you know, now I hadn't anticipated how long it would take for that to feed through into, into the system. But obviously there's huge supply chain pressures now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a whole other avenue um, we could talk about. But I love how you how positive you 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 see your own career um over the years and how you how you combine that part of that's what i love to do and obviously we know the financial industry pays really well and the interesting way you you found your way into it i think that's that's pretty unique uh, that's really awesome i think one point that that you're really famous for is being being in forensic accountant so looking into a company and just from their financials and whatever they they have in their public reporting to see if this is a company that maybe makes things look a little bit too good to be true um, or is probably on the verge of being fraudulent. And we know there's a couple of really active investors who kind of do this all the time. And there was a bunch of cases with Rivian um, where a lot of people said, well, this is the biggest fraud ever. Um, there's so little technology. Um, there's so much potential opportunity that everyone who is investing into this company basically doesn't want to see what's actually going on. It's empty promises and the balance sheet is basically, it's all cooked up and the technology as well. Um, maybe you can give us a glimpse 
what are the things that you're looking out for when you do this? How do you how do you determine there's a pattern of fraud or there's a pattern of something fishy going on? You know, it's very kind of you to say that I'm famous. I, mean, I don't think I'm famous at all. But, uh, and, you know, the forensic accounting is only sort of one aspect of, of what I do. And the, the, the thing is that I don't believe you can be uh, an effective investor or as effective as you might be without having due regard to the financial statements. Now, obviously, in today's markets, there is a lot of stocks that are making, you know, very large losses that are very highly valued. And people aren't really paying a huge amount of attention to today's um, profitability. But you do for, you know, a very large number of companies, a very high proportion of the stock market, you do have to understand how the company makes its money, how it generates cash flow. And even for those companies that are loss making today, I mean, you do have to think about how they're going to generate cash at some point in the future. And, you know, I know there's lots of people who invest without even opening their accounts. I mean, a funny story was I, I was approached by a group of private investors in London to do a course, an in-person course for them. And these are a group of value investors. They invest predominantly in small cap stocks. And I, um, I agreed to do the, I agreed to do the, the, the day with them because I had some clients that paid for a day and I, I didn't have enough critical mass. And so I put the two groups together and I said, I'm going to go through a particular example, bring a copy of their accounts because they normally, um, when people did this in my office, I would give them copies of the accounts. But these people being value investors, they were chiseling me on the price and they didn't want to do it in my office. They wanted to do it in their premises. So I had to, I didn't fancy carrying bags of, you know, accounts are quite long, right? So you got 250 pages of accounts and you got multiple copies. It'd be quite heavy to carry with your laptop and everything else. They came, these guys came, two of them came, they didn't bring their cans, they brought the preliminary release. And these two people were full-time professional investors. And they didn't even know what a set of accounts was. Which, you know, yeah. you think, I mean, it, I find this just bizarre. Now, they would argue that they'd been perfectly successful and they'd, you know, they'd done well and they didn't need anything more than this. Obviously, if you're in a bull market and we've been in a bull market for over a decade, you can get away with shortcuts. However, it's my view that no analysis, no proper research can be done in a company. It can't be complete unless you look at the financial statements. And obviously, if you're a professional investor, and the bulk of my um, business is doing training for professional investors. And every single one of them, they have a fiduciary duty. You know, they can't not look at their accounts. So, yeah. you know, the accounts to me are central to an understanding of a business because they're a financial representation of what's happening in that business. And I can go through a balance sheet and I can tell you, 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 if you showed me a balance sheet today, right now, and you didn't tell me the name of the company, I could tell you, you know, with a surprising degree of, of precision, what sort of business it was, just by looking at the balance sheet, not, without looking at P&L, without looking at yeah. the cash flow. And um, I think people just underestimate the power of financial statements. They're, they're very much less used than they should be. But aren't they, and you, you outlined a couple of those ways in, uh, publicly, aren't they, and I think this is, this is where, where, where I come in, I always feel we have all this regulation in financial markets, but it's, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a tug of war between the regulatory fiat that's out there and says, well, this, this is how you should, should construct your own balance sheet. This is how a gap works, right? 
this, there's, there's certain accounting practices that are important to you and we have um, public accounting companies and we have uh, regulators, but it seems like it's a cat and mouse game. You can always hack this. You can always come up with a way where you, you defer losses, where you bring profits into that will be future profits, you bring it into the present. It seems like it's so easy to fake um, that a lot of people are discounting it and say, well, why do I even look at this? If the companies basically can, well, we know that Tesla has very strange cash flows that are definitely not positive, but they're suddenly making enormous profits and made it in the S&P 500. If something is at odds there, I mean, the stock price was only moved because they went into the index, not because they suddenly made millions, billions in profits. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, when you prepare a set of accounts, there's a certain amount of judgment involved, a certain amount of estimates involved. And of course, an unscrupulous CFO and an unscrupulous CEO can bend the numbers and make them appear as they wish. And you can do that for quite a long period. If you want to commit a fraud, you can you can do so. But I think you know, every fraud that I've looked at has given off signals that would have enabled the competent investor to avoid and know that there was something wrong and to steer clear of it. And, you know, the problem with the fraud is that, you know, it can do very well for a time because if you're making up the numbers, you can look very, very good, right? I mean, exactly. you know, people, yeah. people don't make up the numbers to show a declining revenue they make up the numbers to make them look good and so yeah. obviously what happens with all these situations is the stock goes up and sometimes goes up very steeply and can can continue going up for years until the fraud is uncovered but when the fraud is uncovered usually it's a zero or a near zero so i think the smart investor understands what they need to look at in order to identify these situations. And then once they've identified them, they either steer clear of them, or if you've got the appetite for it, you can go short. And it, it, you know, going short of frauds is a dangerous activity because the fraudster will force the price up against you. And often you'll be in the company of other people who have identified the same thing as you are, are also short. And as the you know, as you get this sort of ebb and flow, because the fraudster sees the share price going down, ramps it up again. The shorts get scared or get are forced to cover. The share price gets ramped up even more. More shorts have to cover. Then more shorts. Come. So you get this seesaw effect. But the ending yeah. is always the same because you know you can't continue a fraud forever because sooner or later you get found out. And so if you're smart, you understand the rules that the accounting rules you understand when companies are taking undue advantage of them and you'll avoid those situations and maybe you know have a long dated put option which will pay off over time or you know if you if you're a professional investor and you're prepared to take the you know the ride the ebbs and flows then you'll be able to trade uh, trade on the short side but Without having those that knowledge and those skills, I think you're you're at a massive disadvantage. And pre-COVID, I've been pointing out that the the, the number of companies in the S and P five hundred and and indeed in the mid cap space who were exaggerating their numbers was at a record. I mean, it was like the you know the latter half of the nineteen nineties. When there was a huge amount of fraud, there's a, a, a series called the um, called NEPA and the NEPA corporate profit margins after tax. If you plotted them against the S&P 500 in the second half of the 1990s, the S&P 500 still carried on going up and the NEPA margins started to go down. You had this crocodile jaws and exactly the same thing happened from the, you know, in the second half of the 2010s. And you know the S and P is still going up through the roof, and the NEPA margin is going down through the floor. Now there are certain inconsistencies between these two measures because obviously the S and P 500 includes a lot of overseas earnings more so than it did 20 years ago, and the NEPA margins includes a lot of 
SMEs because they're they're based on the the filings with the Inland Revenue Service, Internal Revenue Service in the United States. So they're, they're based on tax data. So there's a there's an inconsistency between the two. But generally speaking, those two numbers, those two trends have always when they've when they started to go apart, they've always met again. They've always started to recover again. And then, you know, the same thing will be true this time. We've been in a period in which there's been an undue amount of fraud. And if you're if you're exposed to it, you you know, your bull market will end because if you've got a big position in a fraud and it goes to zero, it will really damage your portfolio. And I think people have yeah. been Yeah, I think people have been too complacent. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm fully with you. What I'm 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 interested obviously in is that where do you see this gray line that someone goes to a fraud from a creative accounting standard, right? So when people ask me about Tesla, what I think about Tesla, I think it's one of the most creative accounting frauds ever, but it's also one of the most forward-looking, most interesting companies I've seen in a long time that also has massive scale effects that isn't a small player. So I'm really not sure what I should think of Tesla. Is that something I... I, I I endure and I, I tolerate because I know this company has that potential in terms of making the world a better place, right? Very utopian, not necessarily making a lot of money. Hopefully that is part of the game, but it's obviously very far out um, cash flows. But how much should I, when, when, when you see these, these signs, where does fraud begin and how much of this would you discount? Where would you say, well, I accept that because... There's so much to this company that even if they are fraudulent, maybe it's just the CFO and the CEO has no part in it. Like, do you make that distinction or do you say, okay, there's one ounce of fraud and this thing's going on? Well, I, I mean, I, I've never said that Tesla is a fraud. Um, I've criticized. I know. I'm just, uh, that's, I, yeah, that's, that's coming from me. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I've criticized Tesla's accounting and certainly the, there are, you know, a lot of things that are wrong with the way Tesla does its accounting. And it's been able to present the numbers that it wants to present because it's been very inconsistent in the way it approaches various various issues. And, um, you know, the, the Tesla earnings are not really a, a proper reflection of what a more conservative finance guy would, would produce. But... I, you know, it, it's slightly irrelevant because whether they're making one dollar of earnings or two dollars of earnings is not today is not what Tesla is about, you know, and it wouldn't exactly. it doesn't necessarily make any difference to the share price. But, you know, generally speaking, I mean, if a company, if I feel a company is fraudulently representing its its earnings, then I will not invest. It doesn't matter how good the story is, because, yeah. you know, I believe that if I'm going to put my capital to work, I want to put it to work with people who have a high degree of integrity and honesty. And if they don't have that, I'm, you know, I'm slightly nervous. I mean, that's what I say. I mean, I, I think in the book, um, I, rec I can't recall exactly sometimes as I wrote it, but um, I talk about investing with billionaires. You know, family-owned businesses have tended to be a very good place to invest. You run the risk with a family-owned business or founder-led business. You do run the risk that there could be a fraud because they're much more capable of, of doing something fraudulent. But that's in a very small minority of cases. And generally speaking, family-led businesses, founder-led businesses tend to do quite well. And if you invest with billionaires, you tend to do even better. And I talk about in the book, um, investing with crooks. So if you have someone who has been to jail and they've come out of jail and they've started a business and the business has been highly successful, many institutional investors feel uncomfortable because they they think if this goes wrong, people are going to point the finger at me and say, how could you, how could you not have known? Because that guy went to jail. Yeah. And as a consequence, um, there have been um, instances where it's been possible to make very, very profitable investments 
simply because many institutional investors would shy away from the stock until it until the story became too good to ignore. You know, once it's become you know once it's become super successful, a much larger company, people go, oh okay, and you get that sweet spot where nobody wants to touch it. The, the the business is doing really, really well. You can buy it really, really cheaply. And then, you know, when people eventually get on board, you've made a fantastic return. And you haven't taken a huge amount of risk because at the end of the day, that guy that started off in jail, he's founded the company, always wealth is in the company. You know, you're in the same, exactly in the same position as he is. And I found those that can be a really attractive and, and, and you know, very profitable opportunity but with that exception you know if i feel that there's something dishonest about a company dishonest about management usually it's better just to stay away because even if you know even if you think oh yeah i could make money in this i think a big part of investing is being able to sleep at night and if you you know you don't want to wake up at night wondering about an investment you want to be you want to be able to sleep at night and devote your devote your attention to you know the next opportunity or you know to managing your portfolio or whatever so you know i i believe that honesty and integrity in the management is a you know a must have yeah well i don't know if you you've had the chance and now we know the result uh um, but if you had a chance the last couple of years to look into Wirecard, and Wirecard was a, a European business actually based in Germany that seemed to have um, cornered the market for credit card payments in Europe at the time. It turned out that basically none of their revenue actually existed, so they just swapped revenue between different um, subsidiaries and different third parties that partially existed, partially didn't exist. and. Uh, so they did this with a relatively small amount of money. So if I remember correctly, it was worth in market cap $100 billion. They were supposedly having about a billion dollars in revenue, um, a few, maybe $100 million in profits. And, but the actual cash that has been found so far was way less than this. So it seems like with very small amounts of money, they could create a massive balloon of revenues and then a massive balloon of market cap because the story was so good. That seemed almost too easy to be true. And yes, it was a little opaque, but it wasn't completely difficult to say, well, something really strange is going on because nobody who was a user of this potential merchant service, nobody knew them in the market, right? That, that was always a big red flag. Nobody really used them, but apparently they made a lot of money. Nobody knew who actually used, which companies, which customers actually used that software. Well, I mean, Wirecard is pretty obvious. I mean, the FT did the big expose. Uh, I think it was February 2019, if I remember correctly. I remember having uh, an exchange on Twitter with Lucy McDonald, who was then the global CIO equities at Allianz. And Lucy's a fantastic person, brilliant investor. And she didn't own Wirecard. And she said, you know, well, Steve, what is it a fraud? And uh, I... I never like to say in public, yes, this is a fraud, because if you say that and it is a fraud, they're going to come after you. You know, they're going to start suing you and they're going to cause all sorts of trouble. So I didn't say Wirecard is a fraud, but I said, you know, there are all sorts of question marks about this. And, and there were some very clear question marks about Wirecard. It had, um, if I remember correctly, a billion and a half on its of cash on its balance sheet, and then it went and raised a euro bond, or yeah, I think it raised a euro bond, and then it did another one, and I think at the end it had two point five to three billion euros of cash in the balance sheet, and it had a billion and a half of debt. I know why would you why would you have that? You know, if you've got a billion of cash, why would you be going out raising debt? That makes sense. And, sounds, yeah. sounds like Uber to me. I'm sorry? It sounds like Uber. Uber has this massive cash pile right from the equity investors, but they keep on raising debt as well. So they, they're taking money from wherever they can. That's that's how they, they formulate it. Well, you have to ask yourself, 
if, if a company has a lot of cash in its balance sheet, you have to ask yourself, well, why would it be raising more equity or why would it be raising more debt? Yeah. I mean, cash, you know, in some European countries, you've got to pay to hold cash. You know, why, why, would, you, why would you want more of it? Most, yeah. most genuine companies are desperate to get rid of their cash. And, um, you know, I've been very involved with the Greensill debacle and, you know, highlighting what went wrong at Greensill, which we started highlighting, I don't know, um, well over a year ago. And um, one, of the, one of the interesting things about the supply chain finance business is that many European corporates that have got cash are funding supply chain finance because a, a way of investing the cash profitably in the short term without having to pay interest, negative interest rates on the cash. Yeah. So, um, you know, any, I think particularly today, any business that you see that has got a big pile of cash in its balance sheet and is then going to the market either for equity or debt, you've got to ask yourself, well, is there a good reason for that? Now, you may, I, I don't know the particular case you mentioned, I can't think of why there would be a good reason, but maybe there is. You know, I don't, yeah. I, I'm sure, I'm sure there are companies that, that might do that. I mean, one reason you might have is if, for example, you had a large lease book and you had a lot of um, equipment coming off lease and you, and you had a lot of um, short term expiries. So you might just need more liquidity in order to manage that. Um, but generally speaking, and certainly in the case of Wirecard, the cash balances and the need for more capital was a very clear indicator that all was not well. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. When, when you look at banks and uh, particularly the, the ones that, you know, they're le a little less steadfast, so to speak, what do you think of the accounting practices in the banking industry, especially? I always feel it's 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 kind of a big leap of faith that you have to take if you look into banks' accountants' accounts, because simply most of what they own are securities that are that are marked to market, and they, that can change at any time, right? So there's a drawdown, 40-50%, and then whatever was their profit for the last couple of years just evaporates in a few days. Um, what do you think of the accounting system and how well banks are reflected in this? Because it seems to me it just doesn't really fit them. Or maybe I'm just seeing it incorrectly from the outside. Yeah, before I get on to the banks, as you'd have just said on Wirecard, what was remarkable about it was that the the FT, the, the big campaign, was I think, I think it was February 2019. But um, and then, you know, Baffin said, oh, the journalists are wrong and but it took until June 2020 for the whole thing to unravel. And this is the remarkable thing about some of these frauds is that you would imagine that as soon as the FT started asking questions, people started looking, you'd imagine the whole thing would implode. You would imagine that stock market investors would run a mile. But no, I mean, it, it, it carried on. And it's quite amazing to me how people are prepared to just not ignore all the evidence and still hang on to the slender thread of hope that this was really a, you know, something that was going to make them a lot of money. When it comes to banks, um, I, I, I have a sad admission to make. So I worked for the largest financials hedge fund in the world. And I was one of, I don't know how many partners we had, seven, eight. Um, and we had two portfolio managers a banks analyst, an insurance analyst, property analyst, and I did the non-financial stuff. And um, I used to go out to lunch with my colleagues and the banks analyst would start talking to the insurance analyst and they could have been talking Dutch. In actual fact, the, the banks analyst was Belgian, so he could have been talking Dutch. But, you know, they were, honestly, they were talking a different language. And from examining up close how you know some of the best financials investors in the world were looking at banks i came to the conclusion that banks and insurance companies were for people who were 
more intelligent than I am. I'm just a simple guy, right? And banks are incredibly complicated. I remember um, the Sunday Times in, in the UK was celebrating the 50th anniversary of its business section. And they asked me to do a piece on how accounts have changed in 50 years. And they managed, I said, well, get me a set of 50-year-old accounts because, you know, we need to look at what, what it looked like. And the only one they could find was the Midland Bank. And the Midland Bank accounts in 1967, I think it was, they, um, they were something like 30 pages long. And it, it was basically just a balance sheet. You know, there was no data at all. And I then got at the successor company, which is HSBC. And the HSBC accounts that year, I think it was 2017, I might be wrong, but the, the accounts, the main accounts were 520 pages long. They also published four subsidiary bank accounts, each of which was two or 300 pages long. Yeah. Just to go through the accounts would have been several man months of work, you know, because they, they're, you know, the detail in in these things it is an extremely difficult thing to do i work with a guy called mark rubenstein who publishes a great newsletter called net interest and mark like me was worked at a hedge fund he ran the lansdowne global financials fund which was then the number two um financials fund in the world and he knows banks inside out and backwards and if I ever have to do any work in a bank, I go to Mark because yeah. it, it, the, but you, the point you make is a more general one. And this whole thing of having very complex accounts, lots of mark to market accounting, lots of weird, spurious investments. That is not a characteristic that's exclusive to the banks. You know, if you opened the accounts of any of the Chinese tech companies, you would see a very, very similar pattern. And they're similarly very opaque because you don't know how they be how those investments have been valued. You don't know whether they're they're being valued on the basis of an open market transaction or a related party transaction. You don't know who's valued them. You don't know whether the basis of valuation is accurate. And I think you know, many of these companies are carrying investments in their balance sheet where the auditor probably doesn't know what they're worth. If anything, you know, I suspect the CFO of the company would struggle to, you know, yeah. value, value the businesses precisely. And that's, you know, there's, there's a, an inherent danger in that. The more complex things become, the more opportunity there is for obfuscation, if not fraud. And yeah. um, the more complicated it is, the, the, the less chance you have of getting an information edge without doing a huge amount of work and people people don't want to do that people don't want to invest that amount of time you know so if i i mean it's highly unlikely that anybody would make me the cfo of a public company but if i were and if i wanted to cheat what i would do is i'd make it super complicated because i know yeah, once exactly. it gets about yeah once it gets above a certain level of complexity, people just shrug their shoulders and they give up. Yeah. Well, yeah, eventually you got to run out of cash, right? This is kind of this pyramid we're building, right? So we, 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 we create um, transactions between different affiliated third parties. We, we create um, these valuations that are not marked to market, as you say. It could be a subsidiary that was just moved around different other subsidiaries, and that's how we got to the market price. There is, in the end, I mean, the cash needs to run out. And currently, we are in this phase. And I, I, you said that earlier that we are in this constant bull market, but we also have this rise of the loss-making companies, which we saw earlier in the '90s, and we keep seeing this every couple of years um, in certain certain stage of the mania. But isn't that do, don't we have? Isn't it slightly different this time? And here's why: a we we print so much money, right? And we still don't have any inflation. Nobody knows where all this money goes. So that's a big mystery. Maybe you can help me understand this. It's like a black hole where all this money sinks in. Like we know there's there's people who work in the in the Japanese central bank. They print literally billions every day, and this money just disappears. It's it's zero inflation. 
And then the other thing is, well, if we have such low interest rates generally, and the expectation is that they keep on staying low, isn't that the only rational thing to do is to go into loss making now, but future extensive cash flows. So to just change the risk paradigm, we basically just invested the call options. That's what the millennials have figured out, right? You just buy call options and they hope for the best. It kind of worked out with Tesla and a couple of others. But that seems to be suddenly rational that you say, well, I might lose the whole thing, but it's a call option for the future, maybe long term in the future. And it's the only thing that works because otherwise the, the growth, the normal growth, so to speak, it's gone anyway. So we're never going to go back to three, four, five percent GDP growth. Well, you've 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 made a lot of very um, bold statements there. I mean, you said there's no inflation. I, I would disagree with that. I mean, I I know that the headline figures say that there's been no inflation for forever. But if I look at what it costs to run my household. I can tell you that there is very, very real inflation in my household. Right, so, but Stephen, we, 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 I think we printed 60%, including electronic dollars, 60% of all dollars ever printed in the last 18 months. And we don't have 60% inflation. We have maybe 10% or 6% or whatever the number really is. Yeah, but I mean, we don't have it today. You know, you, you should never underestimate the time lags in the system. You know, yeah. economic systems are very complicated and the things take a lot of time to work through. And there is this argument about, you know, is this current burst of inflation transitory or is inflation um, endemic and here to stay? I think quite a lot of economic commentators have said that we are in a new inflationary environment. I listened to um, the podcast. I'm trying to remember which one. I think it was Macro Voices. And they had David Rosenberg on. And David Rosenberg... I've got a huge amount of time and respect for it. He um, helped me a lot in 2008 because he was very bearish. He helped me understand the housing market and so on in, in America. And um, I, I, I have respect for him. And I thought he did a very good job of, of a very persuasive job of explaining why there wouldn't be inflation this time around because under Trump, you're 3% unemployment and you'd no inflation then. So why should we have inflation now? But I listened to uh, a webinar with Dylan Grice, who I used to know when he was a strategist at Societe Generale, and Russell Napier, who was former strategist at CLSA, and um, who I've known for some years, and who's a, a pal of mine, and who I, I think is one of the most brilliant people I've met um, and, you know, he, he's got an astonishingly powerful mind. I mean, just amazing. And he, um, last year, said, you know, I've come to the conclusion that disinflation is coming to an end and we're going to enter an inflationary period. And he's got some quite extreme views on the consequences of that. I mean, I just look at this very simply. We have, I thought, when post the global financial crisis, I thought they'd injected enough money to create some inflation. And I was slightly surprised that they didn't manage to. Um, but, you know, we've done that in spades again, on top of, is you know, money being thrown on top of money and in even ever higher quantities. It's, it seems slightly impossible to me that we won't get any inflation and obviously, we've got a period right now where we've got rising energy prices. And whenever you've had, uh, whenever you've had inflation, it's usually been accompanied by higher energy prices. Energy feeds into everything, and um, so we've got higher energy prices. We've got loads of loads of businesses that are struggling to produce supply. And what are they doing? They're putting up price. And we've had an era in which. It's been an era in which the rewards have accrued to the capital owners and labor has had a really pretty bad time. And I suspect that labor will seek to have a better time. Obviously, in the 1970s, you had powerful unions and they were better able to represent labor and have this cost push inflation, labor led inflation. And we're not in a period today in which that's as straightforward. 
particularly when you've got the rise of the gig economy, particularly when you've got globalization and you can send stuff to India or Vietnam. You know, I outsource some of my work, um, some of the subcontracted work uh, to India. I subcontract some stuff. I had some stuff this morning from Vietnam. You know, I've got a guy in Vietnam who draws, does drawings for me. Um, because it's a lot cheaper than doing it in London, central London, obviously. Um, so those will continue to be a, a, a cap on, on the rate of labor inflation. But guess what? You know, globalization has been around for a long time. And the people in Vietnam probably want a bit more money. And everywhere, synchronously, is recovering from the pandemic. And we have got inflation today. And... I interviewed Mario Gabelli for Real Vision two or three weeks ago. And I was interested to do this because Mario is 79. And he's one of the very few investors who have lived through the, the era of inflation in the 1970s in markets. You know, there are people who have been who are who are around then and remember it as a child, but there are relatively few people that actually were investing then. And I was keen to understand from him you know, what it was like working in the stock market when inflation was very high. He, he, he was slightly reticent on that, but he made this amazing comment. He said, inflation is a bit like toothpaste. Once it gets out of the tube, it's very hard to get it back in. And, you know, I think that that's what we'll find. We've got a very high level of inflation today. And I think we'll find it very difficult to bring it under control because the central banks will not want to put up rates. And if you don't put up rates, that inflation will will carry on because it's rate increases that historically have been the cure for inflation. And that, I think, is why in inflationary environments, equities have suffered massive deratings. And it's quite possible this time round that the inflation will actually not impact equities so badly. Russell Napier's view is that it'll be even worse than before. And I, I think that's a possibility, and I'll, I'll be quite an extreme view. There's a possibility that we'll see D ratings in the expectation of higher rates. But if they're, if they, if they're slow to go up rates, they'll, they may be slow to bring inflation under control, which may make people even more worried about future rates. It's a very, very uncertain picture. I don't have a, a very strong view on how it will pan out. But I do believe that we'll be seeing higher inflation than we have formerly. And I should just say on this that the official figures, I mean, I, I don't really understand how they compile the official figures. But when I look at my big buckets of spending, I suffer and have for the last 10 years suffered very high levels of inflation. Because what do I spend money on? I spend money on my children's education. That's been going up. That has, that, has not, you know, that has not been a deflationary environment, I can promise you. If you're trying to educate your kids in central London, it costs a lot more than it did 10 years ago. What else do I spend money on? Medical insurance. My medical insurance is a multiple. Obviously, I'm older, you know, and, you know, and my children are older and, and my wife is older, so obviously that all affects the premium. But I'm sure, like for like, the premium have, have gone up a lot. Uh, yeah, Stephen, I, I, I see where you're coming from. I fully see where you're coming from, and you're absolutely correct. I feel I'm more on the David Rosenberg side, and I, I see it like like if you leave this macro view for a second and, and, and zoom in, what, what, what I see and right now here in Kenya, what, what I see is that prices for, for, for anything in Kenya have come down. You say, well, this is COVID, you know, everyone, everything's a little down, and the tourist economy is down. But it's also food because suddenly there's all these delivery apps here, not just Uber Eats, and you can get anything delivered for 50 cents. It comes from the other end of the town and it's still being delivered. And it's, it seems so incredibly efficient in an economy. And, you know, Kenya is always a little ahead, but it wasn't exactly an efficient delivery economy that existed two years ago. Now, and some restaurants were great, others were, were crappy, but it was generally expensive. I always think of Kenya as an expensive place. No, I feel like it's the opposite. It's it's not just it's not like Southeast Asia, but it's it's moved so much in two years with tons. And, and some of these these elements where I always thought, well, 
food is so important that it's maybe not the big budget item anymore, but it is in Kenya way bigger budget and percentage wise than it is say in London. And the prices here have dropped a lot because suddenly you get food from anywhere in the city. And obviously Uber does a lot of promotions, all the delivery apps do promotions with investors' money. So for I, I feel like when, when, when I see what happened in Kenya, it's the opposite, right? It, it dropped, there's a huge deflation because mostly of technology, entrepreneurship. And I always struggle a little bit with this view. If we feel, we, I think we all agree that maybe you have a really good thought on this. And I had Mike Green on um, in the last episode. We, we kind of had a similar um, topic where we felt, so we know that technology is deflationary and huge. We know China is deflationary, so we're all good on this. But, but we also, on the other hand, feel the productivity growth is low. We also feel that entrepreneurship isn't what it should be. And Nassim Taleb, obviously, is very, very... Um, very strong in that opinion, and I, I absolutely share that. Well, what's going on? If entrepreneurship isn't doing this, what is creating this 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 extremely low, low yields and bonds that people have been not just ignoring? I think they've been tolerating it for a long, long time. Is something doesn't really add up? Is entrepreneurship so good and we make the world a better place and make everything cheaper, or is entrepreneurship so terrible and we don't produce any growth rates? Like in my mind, something is something isn't add up, isn't adding up from what I see on a micro level and what we just talked about on a macro level. Well, you've you've touched on an ironic example of how the money flooding out of central banks is created deflation in certain pockets of the world. Because if there wasn't so much money floating around, highly loss-making companies and, and interest rates were so low highly loss-making companies wouldn't be valued as highly. And it would be, you know, there's so much capital around that there's loads of companies competing to do delivery and they're prepared to lose bucket loads of money in order to be the last man standing. Well, that's, that's a product of the fact there's too much capital floating around and it's too cheap, right? Well, guess what? When that situation comes to an end, as inevitably it will, because all that capital is being being burned, right? Because I've got no idea how much it costs to get a piece of uh, a meal from a restaurant on the other side of Nairobi to you, but I can promise you it's more than 50 cents, right? And, you know, the cheap Potentially, meal delivery, I actually don't know, yeah. The cheap meal deliveries, I mean, they're, they're coming at a loss, right? Yeah. And, you know, at some point in the future, reality will set in because one or two or three of these players will start to go bust because they'll run out of capital because they're the shareholders will run out of patience and the money won't be free and the money won't be as plentiful and well, then, in the restaurants right in terms of restaurant delivery they take a 25 to 35 percent margin all the delivery apps so they basically show up say you can maintain your own prices but we, you have to drop your prices by 35% because it's all margin if you want to be on the platform. And it, you know, to an extent, it needs to be competitive what's the in-restaurant uh, price. And uh, this is extremely deflationary because food prices made in restaurants just dropped 35% worldwide. But, well, yeah, but I mean... In a global sense, in a macro sense, which I think is amazing for, for consumer comfort. Yeah, but I mean, look... You know, we, and especially in COVID, we've had no choice but to have more deliveries. But it, it, it's not quite the same experience, is it, having a delivery versus going to going to the restaurant? And yeah, I mean, they're, they're taking the 30%, 25% commission, but it still doesn't cover the cost of the delivery for many of these, for many of these yeah. deliveries, you know? Yeah. Um, if I just look at Just Eat and I look at my local, um, if I open my Just Eat app, the 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 first choices on there are restaurants that have a very very low price point, and I, I I've not I've never I've never looked at any of the delivery companies. I've got no idea what the the real economics are, but I'm I would question whether the the current pricing and the current volumes are sustainable because it seems to me that there's a lot of just to eat deliveries or uber eats or you know whatever whichever delivery company you want 
where you're they're delivering a ten dollar meal or a twenty dollar meal and they've got to pay the the rider they've got to pay for the petrol they've got to pay for the software they've got to pay for the infrastructure and that doesn't make sense right it just doesn't make economic sense to me i mean it may may, may be that uh, we'll we'll find out that i'm wrong and that they can somehow manage to scrape together a living but i'm firmly of the view that there has been a flood of money creating a flood of capacity which is creating a price war amongst the participants and when the flood of money goes away the flood of capacity will diminish over time and the cost will go up and what you have today is likely an artificial construct because there's too much competition and when that when you know when things settle down the cost of this will will go up to you because yeah. it, it it must do i mean you know some of these some of these um services they use the the restaurant's own delivery people so all it is is the platform and yeah. you know, from, from the, the perspective of the restaurant yeah they're very happy to get this incremental custom because it keeps their kitchen busier and they they, they still can offer seats in the restaurant so it's very good economics but when the guy the restaurant own delivery guy comes to my house and says here's your delivery isn't he going to say well why don't you order direct next time and we'll throw in a free milkshake or a free dessert or because why should they give away the economics and um i think that's the that's a big issue to to my mind it's an it's an interesting area it's one that i would like to spend a bit more time on because I, it's one that i don't fully understand today and i would like to understand a bit better so i should I probably probably you should never talk about something you don't understand and you'd probably never talk in public about the theories that you're still working on and formulating and trying to i i stood i do this all the time i think no it's you know it's it's part of this 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 mind building that that we do on the internet and i think this is what youtube is all about is that it's all unfinished business and yes there's negatives to this and there's way more chatter than it maybe should be and there's not enough effect sometimes but i think this it really helps me understand how other people think even if their finished opinion might not be relevant yet right it's not fully formed and i actually was it was just in your boat and felt delivered this delivery business is is a is going to be the graveyard of many many companies and all these billions are gone and i recently changed my opinion i felt like the last 12 months and obviously COVID, it was a big boost for them something happened there and people are suddenly i feel these businesses are great and i'm i'm, I'm late with that because venture capital investors thought that a long time ago right and some of the public investors too but well who knows maybe they're still gonna die who cares uh, <laughs> i i wish i had i had some of those answers i don't anyways um what what i wanted to go back a little is when you look at current and we, you touched on the chinese internet companies we just spoke about delivery companies maybe you have some examples where you feel like well either this particular sector this industry or this this geography you feel like or the specific companies that is something where investors right now should look twice because you feel man these numbers just look too good it, it better you you better if you go along and want to invest in a company you better look twice right now where where would these these companies or these um groups classes of companies be well torsten i i produced a report a forensic accounting analysis of the five largest chinese tech companies um, uh, last summer and um, if you if people are interested they can go to my website behind the balance sheet.com and it's on sale there for I think we've reduced the price it was five thousand dollars I think we're now charging three thousand pounds or three thousand five hundred pounds for it and we've done a comprehensive review of what uh, of what's going on in these businesses and um, I think my clients that have paid good money for that that report would wouldn't thank me for you know issuing the the findings uh, publicly on on air. But 
But I mean, one of the one of the issues I think that people need to think about quite carefully is if you look at those five companies over the last six years, they have invested something like five vision funds or a vision fund each, if you like, into the hundred billion, right? So collectively, they've invested nearly five hundred billion dollars in venture capital tech. You know, there's the, the ten cent investment in Tesla. Some of it has been outside China, but they're predominantly within China. And clearly, the Vision Fund itself has had a significant influence in the valuations of tech, the tech sector, and early stage tech investing. Of course, yeah. If you if you do five of them and concentrate it in a single country, there is no way that you haven't influence the price and there's a circularity to the arguments here because these companies are saying that they're that they're that their investments are worth this price and of course you know many of these investments now come to the chinese stock market and are are still highly valued but the the the, the whole chain has been supported by a huge push of capital into it by this, by these, by these corporations, and you know, I ask myself, well, what would these businesses be worth without that? Now, you might argue that that capital was needed in order to create some of these new businesses, but I don't know if you remember seeing pictures of the mountains of bicycles. You remember that? So the all those yeah. bike, all those bike yeah. apps, and in Shanghai they had you know, mountains of bicycles that were just bulldozed and put in a tip. Yeah. And, and that they ended up in the rivers, right? In tons of yeah. rivers in China. And I saw it in Thailand. Um, there was one of those really cheap car sharing, not car sharing, bike sharing um, carts that you could use. But the, 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 we are thinking, I don't know, people probably that, that listen to this, they think of electric bikes like Lyft and Uber have those, but they were extremely cheap bikes. They were like a $20 bike that was rented out for like $5. A day um so they, they were crappy bikes right and they were just all thrown in the river because people hated that so much and didn't use it anymore yeah but i mean the the, the point the point i was trying to make was that there were you know there's a lot of money burned yeah and a lot of that money has been burned a lot of that money has been wasted i mean you know that that's in a way you know that's part of capitalism and that's part of the whole ecosystem in tech because you expect some of the money to be wasted but I, you know, I think we'll look back on this period with, uh, you know, a, a, a mixture of admiration and trepidation. And you think, well, why did nobody say that these businesses were not worth what they were being changing hands at? Yeah. Yeah, it's often, you know, I think this is this is a really tough question. There is, and you said that earlier, you can't call them a fraud. Because once you do, you're, you, you make yourself liable to lawsuits, or at least potentially. So there's a lot of voices that, that raise a concern. We saw this with FT. But what, when is that moment, right? When is the catalyst actually ready? When, when, when do these voices actually create a feedback effect that the bubble bursts? And that's so extremely difficult to forecast. And I think this, the, the, the voices are there, but they're being ignored. And uh, I, I remember that from '98. I mean, there were tons of people um, who said, "Well, this is unsustainable. This is not gonna not gonna create any long-term effect on these valuations." And something good came out of the bubble, right? But it was different than what we expected, and definitely the bubble burst. But I don't know. I talked about that with Mike. It's not very helpful to just stand on the sidelines and say, "Well, it's a bubble." You, you, it might go on for the next twenty years, right? longer than we, give, we have lifetime left. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that the whole stock market is in a bubble, but I think there are certain, certainly yeah. pockets of stock market which are, are so. And, you know, if you look at uh, Nikola, I mean, I remember saying to somebody, you know, Nikola had been valued at 20 billion, and then there was all the hoo-ha about they'd fake the videos and all of that. And it, it, the share price fell, and it was only only valued at eight billion. And I said, "Well, you know, eight billion. I mean, what eight billion for what? 
you know, because it didn't, it seemed to me like a big, 8 billion was a big valuation for, for what it represented. I think there's a lot of areas like that where the, the valuations just look crazy to me. I mean, the, the, there's a, a UK company, I better not say its name, but I can remember visiting the company, oh, probably 15, I don't remember exactly, 10, 15 years ago. And they, they, they do fuel cells. And they had this brilliant idea for fuel cells. And we're 10, 15 years further on. And there are no, I mean, they haven't got a working product. They've burned, you know, they've burned millions, millions of pounds. But they're now valued at 10, 20, 30, I've forgotten how much, but, you know, 20 times what they were valued at when I looked at them. And I looked at them and I thought, it's too risky. So we're, we're, you know, we're all this time further on. They invested, they burned all this additional cash. They aren't any, I mean, I suppose they're further forward technically, but they don't have a working product that people are buying. They're still an early stage company and they're valued at 20 times what they were valued at when I wouldn't put my money in. And I just think, well, you know, I don't, I don't know the details about that business today. But I know for sure that that share price is going to fall by ninety percent. You know, it, it, you know, it is, it's obvious, right? Yeah. And uh, I think there's lot there's lots of pockets of bubbles in 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 markets today. But you know, you always, you end of a bull market, you always have some bubbles, right? Yeah. Well, that is a great uh, a great way to close this podcast. I know your time is very valuable, Stephen. Thanks for, for joining us. That was awesome. Thanks for sharing your insights. Well, Jordan, thanks for having me. I'll just do, before I go, just a plug for my book, The Smart Money Method, How to Invest Like a Hedge Fund Pro. If you want to find me, I'm on Twitter, at Steve Clapham. And my website is behindthebalancesheet.com, where we've got a load of useful material. If you sign up for our newsletter, we've got tons of free training content. And of course, we sell investing courses. And these courses are really, really helpful. If you're looking to improve your investing skills, you're a private investor, you want to do something more than read a book, have a look at our website, behindthebalancesheet.com. Torsten, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great fun. It's been awesome. And we're going to put all these links into the episode notes. We can just click on those. Magic. Thank you. All right. Stephen, take it easy. Talk soon. Yeah.